Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I hope everybody's had a great holiday weekend. First holiday weekend of, what, 2022? Fantastic, huh? Anyway, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Charlotte, and my, my hat's crooked today. Look at that. And I'm going to be your host for the next hour, and I'm going to read from a book today. This is our Sunday reading day, and I hope you guys are ready to curl up in front of a fire, grab a hot cocoa, and uh, we're going to read some interesting stories. Some are Christmas-related, some are dead of winter-related, with the emphasis on the dead. Excuse me. Turkey, right? Yikes. It's all about that turkey. Anyway, again, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California, and we are able to help you and, and, and you know, it may take us a while to get to you if you have a paranormal issue but we are going to get to you we also have affiliates in nevada washington oregon nevada washington oregon and hawaii i think i missed some other place i'm tired anyway <laughs> i've been working out putting up christmas lights in my yard this weekend so i'm a little i'm a little loopy and tired so you have to excuse me so I want to welcome you guys, and uh, if you're watching from Facebook today and you enjoy the what I do with reading this book, please hit that like button and please um, hit that follow button, because I'm always looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube today, be sure to hit that uh, subscribe button, which is that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, and that'll subscribe you to our videos, and uh, that will also uh, alert you when we have a new video out, you know, or when we're about to have a new video out. So uh, hit that hit that little ghost and a little thing for a subscribe will pop up for you. So the book we're reading um, is an interesting book. Sylvia Schultz wrote it. Um, she's been on the show a couple of times. She's good with um, she's good with paranormal investigating and things like that. And she also really does her research. And so the majority of these stories are true. Or I'm going to say allegedly true. I'm a journalist, right? So uh, the majority are allegedly true. So uh hope you enjoy it, and uh, I'm enjoying it. You know, we've, we've we've talked about the we've talked about some very legendary Christmas creatures, and we've talked about some interesting ghost stories, and some very tragic stories. So today we're going to start with a tragic story where we left off last last Sunday. And uh, just wait for this. I've got an old tablet, so I'm just waiting to power this this thing up. My Christmas wish list, you guys, a new tablet. I have an old Samsung, Samsung Galaxy Note. So let me power up Kindle here, and I can get started. And like I said, I will be, I'll be on the air for about an hour, so you can, you know, kind of put that in your schedule. Maybe, maybe you're cleaning house and listening to me. I don't know. Okay, so here we go. And um, this is called the book is called The Spirit of Christmas: The Dark Side of the Holidays. So there's going to be some good story, you know, some cheery stories in here, and there's going to be some not so good stories. Uh, I mean, I mean, good stories, but scary stories in here. Okay, so you know, here we go. So this one is called the Asha Tubla Bridge Disaster, and let me get in a position here where I can read this. And so here we go, and I will be reading for maybe a little under an hour to you guys. Okay. It was four days after Christmas, 1876, and the Lakeshore Pacific Express was behind schedule. The westbound passenger train was on its evening run from Buffalo, New York, to Cleveland, Ohio. A blizzard had swept through the region the day before, and mounds of snow covered the tracks of Lake Shore and Michigan's southern line. 
Two locomotives, Socrates and Columbia, have been pressed into service to pull the 11-car tra train through the deep snow. The locomotives pull two express cars, two baggage cars, one smoking car, three sleeping cars, and three coaches through the dark night. The wind was still blowing fiercely at speeds of 40 miles per hour, limiting visibility and slowing the train to a crawl. The train was headed for the Ashituba station, but it would never reach its destination. At around 7.30 p.m., the train approached the bridge over the Ashituba River. The station was just a thousand feet beyond the end of the bridge. The engineer let himself breathe a sigh of relief. They were nearly there. Darkness had fallen a couple of hours before, and the engineer was relying on the cone of light ahead of him and the feel of the tracks underneath him. As the engine started across the Ashituba Bridge, the engineer realized something was very wrong. The bridge was collapsing beneath the train. The engineer frantically shoveled coal into Socrates' fires, stoking them in a race against time, trying to urge the train to safety on the other side of the 150-foot-long bridge. They were so close, so close, but as Socrates reached the west end of the bridge, the engineer felt a crack and a sickening shift. The stress was just too much. The coupling between Socrates and Columbia sheared off, and Columbia and the rest of the train tore free and dropped into the river, plummeting 76 feet to, to land with an appalling crash. The wooden cars were halted by, were heated by coal, by coal stoves and lit by oil candles. The cars erupted in flames as they hit the shallow waters of the river, turning every car into a twisted mass of burning wreckage. The howling winter winds whipped the flames even higher. Passengers screamed for help as they burned alive. The engineer pulled Socrates into the station and called the fire department, but the deep snow had blocked many roads and a painfully long time passed before rescuers even arrived on the scene. By the time the firemen could get their steam-powered fire engines down to the river's edge, many passengers had already died. Just like the engineer, the firemen could only stand and watch the cars burn. One of the heroes of the disaster was Charles B. Cook, the nation's first black telegraph operator. He stayed at his post at the Ashituba Railroad Depot for 50 hours without a break, first sending news of the disaster, then sending appeals for help and responding to questions from anxious families. By the next morning, 92 of the train's 159 passengers had died. Parentheses. Some say as many as 97 people perished. End parentheses. 48 of them had been buried, had, had been burned beyond recognition. Some 64 passengers and crew had escaped but were injured. That day, a jury was formed to determine the cause of the tragedy. After two months of research, the jury concluded that the blame for the accident rested squarely on the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway. Eleven years earlier, Chief Engineer Charles Collins had looked over an experimental bridge design submitted by another engineer, Amasa Stone. In Stone's design, each beam and truss would work independently of each other. This was a highly experimental design in most bridges. All of, and most bridges, all the components are designed to support each other. Bridge design at the time called for wooden braces to support the iron beams. Stone, though, insisted the structure be made entirely of iron. The iron beams, furthermore, were to come from the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company, the ironworks run by Amasa Stone's brother, Collins. Brother, Collins reluctantly approved the design, and the bridge was built. Over time, the beams of the bridge twisted slightly with the weight of the trains crossing it several times a day. The slow twisting out of true, of true weakened the entire structure. Also, 
it's possible that air bubbles formed inside the iron castings as, as the beams were manufactured. This manufacturing flaw possibly caused the beams themselves to weaken in extremely cold weather, like the day after the blizzard in late December. The Ashituba horror was a disaster not only for the victims who perished in the burning wreckage, but also for the men held responsible. After Collins testified about his role in the disaster, he was found dead in his Cleveland home from a gunshot wound to the head. A pistol lay at his side. The death was ruled a suicide, but two years later, his skull was sent to a medical expert in New York for examination. The expert found that according to the skull wound, it was possible Collins had been murdered. He could have been attacked by a grieving relative or someone who died in the train crash. More ominously, he may have been killed by someone from the railroad trying to shut him up to prevent him from testifying farther. However, Collins had, however, Col I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get ahead of myself. However, Collins had died, he soon found company. Amasa Stone put a bullet in his own head in 1883. Chestnut Grove Cemetery is the final resting place of the unidentified victims of one of the worst train disasters in Ohio's history. An obelisk 37 feet tall was erected in 1896 to honor the dead. The remains of at least 25 people are buried in 19 coffins of the cemetery. Photographers taking pictures of the cemetery have captured orbs and other unexplained anomalies, phenomena that are attributed to the restless victims of the Ashituba horror. Charles Collins is also buried in Chestnut Grove Cemetery. His spirit has been seen leaning against the memorial, leaning against the memorial obelisk for the train wreck victims, weeping for the lives lost because of his bad decision. The crash of NBR 224. The weather on the night of December 28, 1879 was foul in Scotland. Gale force winds howled across the crags, and the powerful locomotive NBR, Northern British Railway, 224, fought the elements as it steamed along the cold, rain-swept tracks. The train approached the Tay Bridge between Dundee and Wormit at speed. As it reached the middle of the bridge, the center span creaked and shuddered, with the twin stresses of the locomotive above it and the violent winds all around it. The bridge suddenly gave out, sending NBR-224 and all its cars into the freezing waters. Seventy-five people died that night, including the son-in-law of the bridge's designer. Some of the bodies were never recovered. The locomotive itself was raised from the bottom of the estuary salvaged and put back into service. The Tay Bridge, too, was rebuilt using some of the beams from the original bridge. The reconditioned locomotive was ominously named the Diver, and many engineers were too spooked to drive it, especially over the rebuilt bridge. Despite its dire reputation, though, the Diver remained in service until 1919. For years, witnesses have said that if you stand on the shore of the Firth near the Tay Bridge at 7.15 on the anniversary of the accident, you can see the ghostly lights of a phantom locomotive and hear screams and the screech of NBR-224's brakes as the tragedy repeats itself. The Iroquois Theater Fire It's the age-old question, what does a parent do to entertain their kid in the, week and in the week and a half or so of Christmas break that comes after Christmas? The presents have been opened, the happy anticipation is gone, you can't even tell, you can't even tell the kiddos to be good in case Santa's watching, at this point in the year, it's an empty threat. It's likely too cold to play outside for very long. One solution for modern parents is to take the kids to a movie. 
1903, the matinee performance of a play was the equivalent. There was such a, there was such a matinee being performed on Wednesday afternoon, December 30th, 1903, at the Iroquois Theater on Randolph Street in downtown Chicago. The theater had opened just five weeks before, and it was magnificent. The day was bitterly cold, but the theater was packed for the hit comedy, Mr. Bluebeard. Officially, the theater seated 1,602 people, but patrons kept coming in, late arrivals. People who bought tickets were standing room, folks with guest passes. By the time the curtain rose on the first act, about 1,840 people, most of them women and children, were crammed into the opulent theater. One usher later, or one usher later claimed that there were at least 500 people standing in the aisles, and every seat was full. Another 400 people were backstage, actors, dancers, acrobats, and stagehands. The theater was dangerously overcrowded, but people were having a ball. The first act was a hit, and the audience buzzed happily during the intermission. The trouble began in the second act, around 3.20 p.m. A carbon arc lamp sputtered, and a spark flew off and hit one of the stage curtains. A lick of flame crawled along the edge of the curtain. Some of the backstage crew tried to beat it out with their hands, but the fire grew. The Iroquois was fitted with a fireproof asbestos curtain for just this sort of emergency. But the stagehand, Joe Dougherty, was filling in for the regular curtain man, who was in the hospital. Dougherty couldn't remember which rope controlled the asbestos curtain. He fiddled with it for a while, trying to drop it. The fire continued to grow, and soon the theater was engulfed in flames. The blaze was quick and utterly merciless. One of the stagehands opened one of the big double doors at the back of the theater. This saved a lot of the cast members, but it was bad news for the people trapped in the balcony and gallery. The contractors who built the theater nailed the vents over the stage shut and left the vents over the auditorium open. The blast of cold air that poured in through the scenery doors mixed with the hot air in the theater and created a deadly tornado of fire that cannoned up to the open roof vents above the auditorium. The fireball sucked the oxygen out of the air, burning and asphyxiating everyone in the upper tiers. In about 15 minutes, the fire had swept through the Iroquois Theater, claiming 572 lives, most of them women and children, out for an afternoon of entertainment. More victims died later, bringing the final death toll to 602, including 212 children. The Iroquois had been billed as absolutely fireproof, but it absolutely was not. In the rush to open, the theater management cut corners, a lot of them. There were no fire alarms installed in the theater. There were no sprinklers either. Management had decided they were too expensive and ugly to boot. The supposedly fireproof asbestos curtain wasn't made of asbestos at all. It was actually made of cotton and other combustible material. And the theater's 25 exits, which architect Benjamin Marshall said would allow the building to be emptied within five minutes, those doors opened inward, not outward. Many in the audience discovered this to their dismay. And when firemen arrived at the theater, they couldn't open the auditorium doors. There were, too, there were too many bodies stacked up against them. The firemen had to pull the bodies out of the way with pike poles, then climb over the stacks of corpses to get into the theater to fight the fire. To keep the audience from being distracted during the show, the theater management came up with a bright idea of turning off the exit lights. Of the few exit lights that were on, one led only to a ladies' restroom, and another led to a locked door for a private stairway. 
Perhaps most tragically, the fire escape door behind the top balcony didn't actually lead to a fire escape. So when patrons yanked open the door, hoping to, hoping to clatter down an iron staircase to safety, they found themselves standing on a platform, a platform that overlooked a 50-foot drop onto the cobblestones in, in the alley below. Couch Place was later rechristened Death Alley by reporters who counted nearly 150 bodies lying there. Some had been placed there by firemen, but others had fallen to their deaths from the platform above. The ghost sightings at the Iroquois Theater are many and legendary, and they began even before the ashes had stopped smoldering. Photographs taken that afternoon of the ruined auditorium show strange blobs of light and mist. In the 1920s, the old theater was replaced by a newer building, the Oriental. According to theater employees, the building is still haunted by the ghosts of those who perished there and by the memories of that terrible day. <clears throat> Excuse me. The stage curtain tends to stick when it gets about five feet down, just as the fire curtain did so long ago. One of the spotlights, right near the location of the light that started the fire, will flash and blink independently of the computerized circuits that now control the lighting. Theater staff claim to see people in the balcony, but when they go upstairs, there's no one behind the locked doors. And then there is Death Alley, which is often said to be even more haunted than the theater itself. People often encounter cold spots and have heard the eerie sounds of children laughing and playing. Many people who walk through the alley feel an uneasy sense of discomfort there, unsettling and creepy. But there is at least one person who is compassionate rather than creeped out. Ursula, ba Ursula Baleski leads Chicago Hauntings Ghost Tours, taking busloads of people to sites all over the city. She has been to the alley behind Iroquois hundreds of times. She has told the story of the tragedy hundreds of times. And every time she is overcome once again by the thought of 602 souls who perished in the Iroquois theater fire. So is her audience. Both the people on the tour bus and those that still haunt Death Alley. A few years ago, Ursula went to Michigan Paracon and Salt, and Salt State Marie. And, oh, and Salt Saint Marie, I'm sorry. While she was there, she struck up a conversation with a psychic medium. The two women were just chatting to pass the time. I hadn't sat at a table with my books or anything, and I hadn't yet gotten the stage to do my presentation. This lady, who had no idea who I was, and we hadn't even been talking about much in the way of paranormal. She didn't even know about the tours. Nevertheless, the medium told Ursula something that rocked her to her core. She said, you go to a lot of places in the town where you live. And you're with different people every night. At the time, Ursula was leading every tour herself. So this was entirely accurate. Then the medium continued. She said, at one of the places you go, the people are waiting for you. And they miss you. You tell their stories. Ursula's eyes widened. There was no way for the medium to know that Ursula was tiring of the weary grind of leading every single tour. Of returning to the crime scenes and the haunted places of Chicago's underbelly night after night. There was no way for the medium to know that Ursula had taken a couple of months break from her grueling schedule of tours. But the medium did know that the victims of the Iroquois theater fire were still aware of Ursula's devotion to their story. The Mon <laughs> These names. The Monongwa. I'm going to try this. Mind disaster. If it's wrong, somebody can write me and tell me, hey, it's wrong. You pronounced it wrong, you dummy. The worst mining disaster in American history happened on December 6, 1907, in, 
in Monongah, I think it's Monongah, West Virginia. The Norfolk and Western Railway opened in 1883, resulting in a boom in untapped coal fields of southwestern West Virginia. Blacks from the South and European immigrants poured into the state to take advantage of this new opportunity. Officially, there were 367 men working in the Fairmount Gold Company's number six and number eight mines that day. Unofficially, the number may have been much higher. Miners often brought their children and other relatives down with them for extra help. The explosion that ripped through the mines at 10.28 a.m. killed most of the men instantly. Mining equipment was destroyed and ventilation systems were heavily damaged. The tunnel ceilings collapsed as the timbers supporting the roof were blown out. The number eight mine had the worst of the explosion. The concrete roof of the engine house was blasted into fragments. One piece, weighing over 400 pounds, was blown more than 500 yards. The official cause of the blast was never determined. Later, people speculated that an electrical spark or an open flame lamp may have ignited a pocket of methane gas or a film of drifting coal or coal dust. But these mines were considered the best of the state, in fact. They had just passed inspection. The fan at number eight would force 240,000 cubic feet of fresh air into the mine every minute. During the October 6th inspection, no trace of gas or dust was found in number eight, and only a slight trace of dust in number six. The explosion was probably caused by a powder ignition that went horribly wrong. The first rescuers ventured into the mines 25 minutes after the explosion. The biggest threat to the rescuers and to any to any man possibly left alive in the mines after, after the explosion and resulting tunnel collapse was the buildup of fumes. There was white damp, which is carbon monoxide, and black damp, carbon dioxide and nitrogen. And either one of them could kill a man just as dead. The dead miners the rescuers found had tried to cover their faces with their jackets or other clothing. This would have helped filter out particulate matter, but it was no help at all when there was no oxygen to be had. Death came so suddenly that many victims were found sitting upright, overcome by deadly gases too quickly to even slump to the ground. The rescuers could only stay in the mine for 15 minutes at a time. Since the ventilation equipment had been badly damaged, there was no way to pump out bad gases or to bring in fresh air. Of the 367 men on the mine's books that day, 362 of them died. One Polish miner was rescued and four Italian miners managed to escape. Many of the Italian miners came from the village of San Giovanni in Fiore, Italy. In 2003, the village erected a memorial to commemorate the disaster. The inscription reads, Fernand de Minatori Calabrisi Morte, now West Virginia, USA. Il sacrificio de Quergue. You get the gist. And here it is in English. Lest we forget the Calabrian miners dead in West Virginia, USA. The sacrifice of those strong men shall bolster new generations. Mononga, December 6, 1907. San Giovanni in Fiore, 2003. And in December, the centennial anniversary of the tragedy, the Italian region of Molise presented a bell to the town. It now sits proudly in, in the Mononga town square, a reminder of lives lost from half a world away. The Union Stockyards Fire. 
checking something real quick here. I got to hang on, hang on one second. I got a uh, troll in here. Let me, let me fix this. I've got this troll. Okay. Sorry about that. I had to <clears throat> deal with a troll. Happens to the best of us. The Union Stockyards Fire. Chicago is famous for being the city of big shoulders. A leader of industry of all kinds, major railroad hub, center of manufacturing host, hostess of vibrant culture, Chicago also had the nickname Hog Butcher to the World. From the Civil War until the 1920s, more meat was processed in Chicago than in any other place in the world. Construction on the famous Union Stockyards began in June 1865, and the yards opened on Christmas Day that year. The complex encompassed 450 acres of land. On the site were animal pens, haylofts, barns, slaughterhouses, packing plants, and refrigerated warehouses, all run by more than 100 separate meatpacking businesses. The Union Stockyards was a messy, loud, dangerous place, made even more notorious by Upton C. Clair's 1906 expose, The Jungle. And on December 22, 1910, the stockyards became the site of the deadliest building collapse in American history, a title it held until September 11, 2001. Railroad tracks ran right through the middle of the stockyards, bringing in thousands of head of livestock for slaughter and taking meat products out. In addition to barns filled with hay, there were other fire concerns. Buildings devoted to slaughter and meat processing were coated with grease. Refrigerator warehouses were a particular fire hazard. Not only were the wooden floors and walls cooked, caked in grease from animal fat, they also contained carcasses of hogs cured with saltpeter, one of the main ingredients in gunpowder. And conditions in the stockyards weren't ideal. Fire Marshal J James Horan was greatly concerned about the lack of safety preparation that plagued the stockyards. Just a week before the blaze of December 22nd, 23rd, Horan had been at the scene of another fire at the stockyards, this one in the armory. One of, the, one of Chief Horan's men had been trapped by the raging fire. Horan tried to save the man, but pulled him out of the building dead. Chief Horan was known for being an innovator as well as a fearless firefighter. He was respected for the many rescues he'd done, both of civilians and of fellow firemen. He created several new fire companies in the city and pushed tirelessly for better water pressure. We can't put out a fire without water, Horn said reasonably. My men are as game as a my men are, are, are as game a lot as live as they are perfectly willing to risk their lives to save property, but it is only fair that they should have mechanical help. The fact remains that a mere thing of flesh and blood can't put out a mountain of flames with his bare hands. The pain of the loss of one of his men still raw, Chief Horn went before the city council to ask for better water pressure at the stockyards on December 21, 1910, less than 24 hours before the monstrous fire began. The first alarm came in at 4.08 a.m. December 22nd, a faulty electrical socket in the basement of the Nelson Morris building. A cold storage facility on the, on the 4300 block of Loomis had sparked and set a fire. A night watchman called in the alarm, just half an hour later, the blaze had grown to a four-alarm fire with, with a few hours, more than, within a few hours, more than 33 fire, 35 fire engines were, were on the scene. One of these engines brought Chief Horn to the site. The fire marshal's expertise was desperately needed in this tricky situation. 
There were several unique physical challenges to fighting the fire. Fire Marshal <clears throat> Horan already knew that the water pressure in the stockyard fire hydrants was woefully inadequate. To make matters worse, many of the hydrants had been shut off to keep them from freezing. The nearest hydrants were 1,200 feet away from the blaze. Building number 7 sat in the middle of the stockyards, surrounded by other buildings. It was right next to the railroad tracks, and a freight train was parked next to the blazing building. These obstructions made it impossible for the firefighters to set up their ladders, and the ladders were vital to the scene. Without them, the firemen couldn't get up to the windows on the upper floors of the seven-story building. The iron shutters on the windows needed to be opened to relieve the pressure that was building up rapidly inside the structure. The firemen knew that the cold air inside the refrigerated warehouse was heating up fast. And when air heats, it expands. If it expanded too quickly, the pressure inside the building would grow to a dangerous level. Chief Warren arrived at building number 7 around 5 a.m. He stood on the building's loading dock to assess the situation and direct operations. His fellow firefighters stood near him, waiting to be directed to where they were needed most. At that moment, tragedy struck. The pressure in building 7 released itself into a massive fiery explosion. A wall six stories high collapsed onto the loading dock. Chief James Horn was killed instantly. Also killed were second assistant chief William Burroughs, three captains, four lieutenants, and 12 other firemen. The blast also set a nearby large house seven stories high on fire. Although devastated by the sudden loss of their colleagues, the other firefighters nonetheless swung into action, simply doing their jobs. By the time the blaze was extinguished at 6.37 a.m. December 23rd, 50 engine companies and seven hook and ladder companies had responded. The bodies of the 21 firemen killed in the walls collapse were solemnly retrieved. In some cases, the bodies were in pieces. One man's hand still clutched his fire axe, but his body wasn't attached. The Union Stockyards fire made, wi made widows of 18 women. Forty children were left fatherless. The loss of these men was made even more poignant by the things <clears throat> and the people they left behind. Twenty-one lives were cut tragically short. Lieutenant James Fitzgerald was supposed to have gotten married on Christmas Eve. Lieutenant Herman Brandenburg had switched days with a co-worker because he wanted to spend Christmas with his family. In William Weber's pocket were found three letters to Santa Claus. Weber, the driver of one of the engines, had planned to go Christmas shopping for his kids at the end of his shift. Edward Shonset died on his 27th birthday. On Christmas Eve, he would have celebrated his third wedding anniversary. Mooring firemen draped Chief Horn's beloved roll-top desk in black crepe, but not before they made a heartbreaking discovery. Throughout December, hundreds of children had written letters to the Chicago Fire Department asking if the firemen could make skating rinks in their backyards. Fire Marshal Horan okayed every one of these things. Requests. On his desk was a memo urging that the rinks be poured before Christmas so that the kids could enjoy their fun during Christmas break. Three of the firemen were laid to rest on Christmas Eve, eight on Christmas Day. Twelve were buried December 26th, and the last one on December 27th. The families of the men were left to carry on, knowing that their loved ones were heroes, but mourning the cost of that honor. The Cross Mountain Mine Disaster Hugh LaRue normally considered himself a lucky man. He had a good job working 
at the Cross Mountain Mine near Bryceville, Tennessee. This was a modern, state-of-the-art operation, not one of those horrible damp mines you hear horror stories about. He had a good reputation as a dependable worker, too. He hadn't missed but a day of work at the mine, and that was the day his youngest child had come, come into the world. And he had a pretty obedient wife, who'd given him the, that child and, and more besides. They made a home together, a life together. Yeah, Hugh LaRue sure felt himself to be lucky most days. December 9, 1911 was not one of those days. It was a Saturday, and Hugh had to go into work. Not that that was such a hardship. Like all the miners, Hugh rested on the day given for it, Sunday, and worked the other six days of the week. No, on the morning of December 9th, going into work was a huge problem. His normally pleasant wife had suddenly come over strange. His sweet wife was refusing to pack Hugh's lunch, Hugh's lunch bucket. And why was that? Why, because of a bad dream she'd had. When Hugh had woken up that Saturday morning, he found Mrs. LaRue already up, pacing the floor, nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. She told him she'd just woken from a gruesome nightmare, a nightmare about his mind. In the dream, she and the children had been standing at the mine's entrance, watching as rescuers carried out dozens of dead bodies, all of them miners, all of them missing their heads. Hugh scoffed at his wife's fears. If every miner listened to silly dreams and fancies, nobody would go to work. And then how would the bills get paid? A man's good reputation was everything, and Hugh had a reputation to uphold and a job to do. And if Mrs. LaRue wouldn't pack his lunch pail, then Hugh would do it himself. At 7.30 a.m. when the mine opened, 160 men were at the mine's entrance, waiting for the rail cars, cars that would take them two miles underground. But that morning, there was a problem with one of the rail cars, and only one car was in service. The car loaded up with fewer than 100 miners on its first run. The other miners stayed above to wait their turn. Just after the rail car left, there was a roof fall near the mine's entrance. Some of the miners grabbed their lamps and walked back to walked back to the fall to investigate the noise. They could see the smoky cloud of coal dust hanging in the air from the roof debris hitting the ground. That was bad. What the miners didn't know was that the roof fall had opened up a fissure that led deep into the mountain's heart, and that crack had led to a trap pocket of methane gas. Freed, that freed the gas seeped up into the mine shaft toward the men and curled up all cozy with the open flames of the carbide lamps the men carried. The explosion shook the ground. Back at home, Mrs. LaRue relived her nightmare of a couple hours before. Only this time, she was wide awake. Fifty mules lived inside the mine, helping to pull the rail cars loaded with coal. The blast killed every one of them. The 89 men who had ridden the rail car into the mine were trapped. Several died in the explosion and the resulting cave-ins. The survivors barricaded themselves in side rooms, hoping for rescue. Most of them perished, suffocating on poison gases and lack of oxygen. And some deaths weren't quick. Eugene Alt managed to scrawl a last message to his beloved ones on the boards of his makeshift barricade wall. Quote, I guess I've come to die. Air is not good now. Well, all be good, and I aim to pray to God to save me and all of you. End quote. Alt later breathed his last in the foul, toxic air. He was 22 years old. But help was on the way. The U.S. Bureau of Mines 
had been created in 1910, just the year before. Members of the Knoxville office arrived at the Cross Mountain Mine within hours of the disaster. The men were the first team ever to mount a full-scale rescue effort. Each man wore a self-contained breathing apparatus as the team moved carefully through the tunnels. And one man carried a birdcage. Inside, a yellow canary hopped and chirped, bringing a tiny bit of cheer to the darkness. This was also the first mine rescue team to use canaries to detect changes in air quality. As long as that little bird was fine, the air was safe to breathe. But the moment the canary started to droop and act listless, the men knew the air was getting foul, either with low oxygen or the presence of toxic fumes. Others helped with the rescue operations, too. George Camp, the superintendent of the adjoining thistle mine, took quick action. The two mines shared a common airflow. Camp got his miners out, then reversed a large fan at thistle. At Thistle, which sucked the poisonous gases out of the Cross Mountain tunnels. Later, the miners at Thistle could tell exactly how well this plan had worked. They found dead rats littering the tunnels at Thistle that had been killed by toxic fumes pulled in from Cross, Mile, Cross Mountain. Of the 89 men that headed down in that first rail car at 7.30 Saturday morning, 84 of them died. Amazingly, five miners were found alive behind a hastily constructed barricade, 58 hours after the explosion. The body of Hugh LaRue was not recovered from the mine. In an effort to placate his distraught wife, the hard-working, reliable miner, who had only missed one day of work in years, stayed home from the mine that day. It saved his life. The Bab Switch School Fire Christmas Eve, 1924 Florence Terry Hill, the teacher at the one-room schoolhouse in Bab Switch, Oklahoma, had been busy all day getting ready for the school's Christmas program. The schoolroom had been freshly painted in preparation for the festivities. The walls still smelled faintly of the turpentine that had been used within the paint. Other repairs had freshened up the small building's looks. A windstorm had battered the school in May 1922 and broken several windows. The windows had all been replaced and covered with heavy wire netting to prevent both storm breakage and vandalism. The wire screens were fastened firmly to the window sills with heavy bolts. Some folks who worked in Hobart, the town, which Bab Switch was a suburb, had to pull a Christmas Eve shift and had to miss the party. Even so, lots of folks came to see their little ones perform in the program. 200 people managed to fit themselves into the 26 by 36 foot schoolhouse for the festivities. A tall cedar tree decorated with paper ornaments cut out by the students took pride of place next to the stage. Red and green tallow candles, wired to the tree's branches, lent a festive glow. The program went off without a hitch. Oh, there was a little bit of stage fright. But the young performers swallowed their butterflies and got up anyway, peering nervously out from behind the bedsheet Mrs. Hill had tacked up to use the stage curtain. Santa Claus, Santa Claus played, with the help of a fake beard and a few judiciously placed pillows, by a 17-year-old doll bolding made his appearance right on time in a jingle of bells and a chorus of ho-ho-hos. He came up the aisle to the stage, stopping to pat a young head here and there, and putting a present on a desktop there. Santa and his helpers, parents on the program committee, reached the front of the room and began to hand out little bags of candy and fruit. Some small presents had been wired to the tree's branches, and Dal Bolding reached for one of them. The cotton trim on Dow's sleeve brushed against one of the flickering candles and caught fire. Dow tried to beat the flame out with a coat, 
then reached for the stage curtains to try to smolder the fire. It didn't work. In a moment, the teen was, in, was enveloped in a sheet of fire. The flames jumped from him back to the Christmas tree. The dry cedar ignited immediately. In trying to beat out the burning tree, one boy pulled it over. At almost the same time, the sheet curtains on the stage caught fire, too. The flames climbed higher and the, and the ceiling caught. Then two gasoline lamps hanging on the walls exploded. People rushed for the only door to the schoolhouse, but the door opened inward, and the press of bodies made it impossible to wrench it open. Strong men hammered on the windows with their fists, trying to break the glass and make it to safety, but the wire mesh did its job too effectively, and the windows held. Aubrey Coffey managed to kick one window loose, but that was all. Jay Revel, 17 years old, managed to squeeze through the open window. Clyde Hudson pulled him the rest of the way out. Aubrey didn't make it. The entire Coffey family, father L.V. Coffey and his wife and four children, died huddled together. Aubrey held his fiancée, Vesta Jackson, in his arms. The inferno was over quickly. It took only three minutes for the cheerful schoolroom to become totally engulfed in flames as the people inside shoved and pushed, trying desperately to get out. Bodies piled up against the one door as the fire blazed out of control. By the time the fire died down, dozens of people had died. More than half of the victims were children. Several Bab Swish families were wiped out completely. The nearest big town was Hobart, and burn victims were rushed to the hospital there. But the victims didn't get help right away. Most of the folks attending the Christmas program had drained their radiators before coming into the schoolhouse. 37 people were counted as missing after the fire. The next day, Christmas, 36 bodies were pulled from the cold, charred debris. The body of three-year-old Mary Elizabeth Edens was never found. Gladys Clements and Claude Bolding were to have been married on Christmas morning. Claude, whose brother Dal Bolding was playing Santa, was badly burned but survived. Dal was burned to death. Gladys was also killed. Gladys' sister, Juanita Clements Stevenson, had come from Michigan for the wedding bringing her three-year-old daughter, May Juanita. They perished, too. So did two more of Gladys's sisters who were going to be bridesmaids. In Gladys's casket, there was a wreath with a card attached. The card simply read, Claude Bolding. But Claude hadn't picked out the card. When Gladys was buried, her fiancé, Claude, was lying in a Hobart hospital in critical condition. The newspapers reported the fire with, with a near-Victorian level of melodrama. One headline screamed, Death Clamps Mad Hands on Christmas Joy. The article about Claude and Gladys led with the somber sentence in the embers of Babswitch School. House Love Lost Its Fight by Two Hours, Christmas Eve. The article told a quick story of the fire in, in Prose that, that dripped with, historical, with hysterical sorrow. Quote, The girl's hand gripped her sweetheart's tighter as the blaze leaped higher. They fought together for a doorway to love's, to love's path. Love looked back into the flames longingly for an answer to his call. No call came. Unquote. Another article tugged on the heartstrings with a photograph of a sweet little dog of intermediate breed captioned, the only living member of the Curtis family. Death has stilled the hands that made a home for the farmhouse of W.T. Curtis. The quietude that settled over the place that night that Curtis, his wife, and their two children left to attend the Christmas Eve celebration at the Bab schoolhouse is unbroken. They all perished in the fire, 
end quote. The reporter went on to describe the confusion felt by the little dog who still waited at the farmhouse's back door, quote, unable to understand why his little playmates, Francis and Enda, no longer came to frolic with him, end quote. Two Christmas packages still lay unremarked at the mailbox. Honestly, it was a natural reaction to a stunning loss. People did survive the fire, but that survival was not without cost. Speaking to the Oklahoman in 1994 interview Mark, to mark the 70th anniversary of the tragedy, Lola Polling Forrester explained, quote, For years you could walk around Hobart and see people with their ears burned off and faces terribly scarred. It was an absolute constant reminder of the Babswitch fire, end quote. 33 students had been enrolled in school, according to the report submitted by Kiowa County Superintendent. When classes resumed several weeks after the fire, only 18 deaths were needed. The other 15 students died, along with their teacher, Florence Hill. The Babswitch school fire devastated the small community. The town can still be found on a map of Oklahoma, but there are no businesses there, not even a post office. The fire did lead to stricter safety regulations in rural school buildings, including mandating that doors should open outward. Public buildings were also required to have more than one exit. The fire also created a mystery, a mystery that took 32 years to solve. Mary Elizabeth Edens, just three years old, was sitting on her aunt's lap when the fire started. Alice Noah snatched up her little niece and fought her way through the panic stampeding crowd. She reached the window that Aubrey Coffey had kicked loose and thrust the child through the opening. Strong hands grabbed the toddler, but Alice was still trapped. Alice Noah died from her burns the next day, but she survived long enough to tell Mary's parents that she pushed the girl out the window and that someone had lifted her safety. At first, Mr. and Mrs. Louise Edens thought that maybe Mary had been taken to Hobart by one of the rescuers, but Mary never turned up. Of the 37 people missing after the fire, 36 bodies were recovered. Perhaps the tiny body had been completely consumed by the flames. Her mother wrote in Mary's baby book, quote, Our precious darling baby was taken from us December 24, 1924, at the Bab Switch schoolhouse fire. Mary Elizabeth Edens, aged three years old, six months, two days, end quote. The young mother's choice of words wasn't just a me melodramatic mourning of a grieving parent. When Mary couldn't be located, her parents truly believed that someone took advantage of the confusion of the fire to steal their little girl. And that, incredibly, is exactly what happened. In 1956, the Daily Oklahoma published a human interest piece entitled, quote, Is Mary Eden Still Living? Unquote. Mary's parents had never given up the search for their daughter. The piece ran near the anniversary of the fire in December. The article was read by an accountant in San Bernardino County, California. The article reminded him of a young woman he knew, Mary Reynolds, who owned a dress shop in Barstow. Around Christmas, he brought the article in to Mary and asked her if anything sounded all familiar. Mary was busy at her store with the Christmas shopping season in full swing, so she put off looking at it until after the holidays. Elmont Place, the accountant, was also a member of the Lions Club. He wrote a letter to Wayne Fite, president of the Lions Club in Hobart. Quote, I have among my clientele a prominent young businesswoman. She does not know who her father and mother were, nor has she been able to find out anything as to possible relatives. End quote. 
There was a good reason for this. Mary Reynolds had lived a life that was positively Dickensian, Dickensian even by Depression-era standards. She spent her life at the, as the cast-off daughter of a viciously poor, abusive family with whom she had utterly nothing in common. Her life until 1956 had been a hard luck tale of Mary pulling herself out of abject poverty, making a life for herself against ridiculously horrifying odds. Both Place and Fike were well aware of the delicacy of the situation. The Enos family had spent a fortune on detectives trying to find Mary. Another disappointment would be devastating. The two men made discreet inquiries and soon had the evidence they needed. Mary Reynolds innocently told Place that as a child, she had been very fond of bacon rinds. Back in Oklahoma, Mary Edens and Bertha remembered snatching bacon rinds out of the toddler's hand, telling her they were bad for her. Bacon rinds, bacon rinds actually turned out to be very, very good for Mary. She was reunited with her family and told her story on the March 27th episode of the Art Linkletter show. There is an odd little postscript to Mary Eden's story, charming and eerie in equal measures. After the fire, the grieving community wanted to do something really meaningful to mark the passing of the seven young children who died or were thought to have died in the blaze. So at Hobart Cemetery, where many were laid to rest, they planted seven trees, new life to commemorate tragic death. The tree planted in Mary Eden's memory died. All right, messing my eyes. The Lawson Family Massacre. A cake on Christmas Day. What a beautiful festive way to start the holiday. Marie Lawson got up early that day to make her family famous raisin cake. The 17-year-old Marie might have hummed a carol to herself as she mixed butter, sugar, eggs, flour, and, of course, the raisins. She filled two pans with the batter and placed them carefully in the oven. The house began to fill with the lovely warm smell of freshly baked cake. As the cake sat cooling on the kitchen table, Marie's father was out behind the tobacco barn, slaughtering two of Marie's sisters. Okay, all right, I got this. Let me read this. It took me a second. As the cake sat cooling on the kitchen table, Marie's father was out behind the tobacco barn, slaughtering two of Marie's sisters. That's why I had to read it twice, guys. Marie never got to cut the cake. Within the hour, she too had been killed by her own father. On that Christmas day in 1929, Charles Davis Lawson, 43 years old, murdered his wife and six of his seven children. Charlie Lawson, a sharecropper, married Fanny Manning in 1911. The couple had eight children over the years together. One boy died of pneumonia at age six. Lawson worked hard, and by 1927, he had saved up enough money to buy some land near Germantown, North Carolina, close to his brother's farms. The property included a 200-year-old farmhouse and barns for storing and curing tobacco. The farmhouse wasn't in great shape and needed some repairs. Charlie was pretty handy, so he did the renovations himself, but there was an accident. Lawson was wielding an axe, which rebounded and smacked him in the forehead. Hard-headed Charlie recovered, but he was never quite the same after that. He'd had a temper before, but now it flared more often and burned hotter too. A couple of weeks before Christmas... Charlie loaded his family into the truck and made the 13-mile drive into Winston-Salem. He took everyone out, clothes shopping, and hang, and hang the cost. Then he led them to a photographer's studio and had a family portrait made. It was, Charlie told the family, all part of a Christmas surprise. Charlie and his oldest son, Arthur, 16 years old, went out hunting Christmas morning. 
They ran out of ammunition before they were ready to quit, so Charlie sent Arthur to the store in Germantown, about 15 minutes away, to buy more. Arthur was still in the store when he got the message that something awful had happened at home. Charlie's brother Elijah and his sons had also been out hunting. They had stopped by the Lawson house on their way home to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. But everyone, everyone at the house was dead. The middle girls, Carrie, 12, and Mabel, 7, had been shot and bludgeoned to death. They were found in the tobacco barn. Fanny was lying on the porch, her chest ripped to shreds by a shotgun blast. Marie's dead body was sprawled next to the fireplace. James, 4, and Raymond, 2, had both been beaten to death. Even four-month-old Mary Lou was dead. And where was Charlie? Relatives fetched Arthur from the store and brought him home, where he tried to process the sudden violent deaths of his mother and his six brothers and sisters. Four hours passed, and still police and relatives searched the woods. Then a single shot rang out, and Charlie's two beagles were heard filling the air with mournful howls. Searchers followed the dog's bang and found Charlie Lawson. He had run into the woods and holed up in a thicket. There he had placed... There he had paced around the pine needle tree for hours, long enough to wear a path of the snow down to the brown forest death. Then he shot himself. The Lawson family murder and victims were all buried together in a single plot. There were only seven castics to bury. Baby Mary Lou was laid to rest in her mother's arms. The inscription on the tombstone that watches over the mass grave is a cry of anguished confusion. Quote, not now, but in the coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand. End quote. The massacre was so shocking that over the next five years, thousands of people came to visit the house where a man murdered his wife and six of his children. One of Charlie's brothers saw a morbid business opportunity and started charging folks a quarter to get in. People ponied up and wandered through the Lawson house in droves. Some of them were simply gawkers, eager to see the sight of a gruesome crime, but others were searching for clues. What could possibly make a father slaughter all of his children but one? What demons drove a man to kill nearly his entire family in cold blood, then turn it on himself? There was a theory, a bite one that gave many people the cold shivers. The theory was that Charlie had been fooling around with Marie. Yes, Marie, his 17-year-old daughter, and had gotten her pregnant. Then he killed her and everyone else to cover it up. Tragedy wasn't yet finished with the Lawson family. Arthur Lawson, the only survivor by virtue of having been sent to the store for ammo, died in a freak truck accident in his early 30s. Some reminders of that appalling day remained for years. Some visitors to the house were cheered to see two small children playing in the yard, then horrified to see those same children in that last family portrait and recognize them as Raymond and Maybell Lawson. The house was eventually torn down, and some of its boards were reused in a bridge that seems to retain the imprint of the crime. People claim that the bridge, too, is terribly haunted. And Marie's raisin cake was preserved as a pathetic reminder of innocent, of, of, of innocent uh, domestic city. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say that word. I don't know why. Souvenir hunters picked some of the raisins off, so the cake was put under a glass cover. It reminded the star attraction. It remained the star attraction at the Lawson home and later in carnival sideshows. Eventually, one of the Lawson's relatives took the cake home and buried it. Okay, well, that's going to do it for today. We'll continue next Sunday. That was a grim read. I hope everybody's cheered up now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't mean it that way. Don't take it the wrong way. But I want to thank you guys for joining me this, this, this afternoon. Let's see. Let's see. Okay.
I want to thank all of you for joining me. I'm just reducing my screen. So I, uh, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to be talking with William Konkolowski. And he is with MUFON. And we're going to be talking about UFOs over the Great Lakes. So that'll be tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And I hope you take the time to join me. I want to thank you guys for coming. And just to let you know and do a refresher if you like what you heard today. And I'm sorry I was stumbling over words. I don't know. I'm, I'm real tired. Um, please uh, hit that like button and that follow button. And uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. If you're watching from YouTube and you like what you hear, please hit, please click on that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. And uh, the share the uh, subscribe button will come up. And that'll subscribe you. We have more than 450 videos sitting over there. And that will uh, alert you to our new videos and also some you know, upcoming stuff. Okay. Anyway, I want to thank you all. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good evening.